Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Reverend Boyd Evans. He is a priest at the St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon, Virginia. And I'm talking to him today because he has extensive experience in the Mideast, has spent time in Palestine, is connected to a hospital there that's been in the news. Reverend Evans, thank you for agreeing to be here with me today. Oh, you're so welcome. It is my pleasure to be here to talk about a place that I and so many love so dearly. Well, I can't wait to hear about your experience, but I'm going to have you, if you're willing, to give us a little historical background before we start. Basically, there didn't used to be an Israel until after World War II. Now there is. Could you just give us an overview of Israel's situation, where they're located, and what that's all about historically? You know, the, the first aspirations for a Jewish homeland in, in this region came about at the end of the end of the 19th century, uh, when Theodore Herzl convened a Zionist, con uh, Zionist Congress in the Swiss town of Basel. And let me just clarify the term as we go. When you say Zionist, that has a specific meaning, correct? The Zionist, I think the official designation is the creation of a Jewish homeland in uh, Palestine. And this need to establish a Jewish homeland was especially acute after World War II, which saw the extermination of, I don't know, 7 million Jews. And so the world kind of came together and said, we've got Jews all over the world who want a homeland. Is And is that how it came about? I think it was even earlier than that. There was significant um, anti-Semitism in Europe even prior to uh, the Second World War, there was uh, significant um, uh, you know, hostility and violence against Jews in Russia. And so I think it, it certainly you know, precedes the, the Second World War. Maybe the Second World War is the, is the culmination. You know, notions began early prior to the end of the First World War. And that's when the Middle East was divided up into many, many different countries that we have today. Uh, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, and Transjordan came out of the, out of the First World War. After World War II, when the world somehow came to the conclusion that it was time for Israel to have a state, how was that implemented? There had already been uh, significant immigration into this region by a Jewish population. It was primarily, there was immigration and there was conflict between everybody, it seems like. The British, who were the authorities in the area, there was uh, between both the Arab and the Jewish population. And so the Arab population wasn't too keen on areas that they had uh, homes and businesses uh, being divided up, you know, without their involvement. So there was this notion, notion of a partition plan um, that was derived at both before and after World War II, uh, both under the League of Nations and under the United Nations that evolved afterwards. The original partition plan gave 55%, I think, of the land to a Jewish uh, population and the remaining 45% to the Arab population. 
the original partition plan, most of the Jewish state was the northern Mediterranean coast and um, and the Arab population would get mostly the what was biblical Judea and Samaria and um, the southern southern areas. But there was the, the populations were pretty entwined uh, at that time already. So and what was to be the uh, Israel state, there was probably 200,000 Arabs living there already. 1948, the, the British withdrew and there was this uh, desire of the United Nations to create this partition state, but nobody really had the desire to enforce the partition. The English withdrew, the United Nations didn't have any desire uh, to send in troops. Essentially, 750,000 Arab refugees were created at this time, most of whom went to Gaza and to the West Bank and to Jordan and Lebanon and, and other, other surrounding areas. We're hearing about Gaza. What exactly is Palestine? That was the area of the, of the British control. Israel moves in. They've pushed out 750,000 Arab refugees. Are you talking people leaving their homes and their property? Yes, definitely. We all believe in the same God. This is just going to go great. Prior to um, World War One, there may have been more uh, coexistence among the, the three religions there. Things got more territorial as, as countries began being divided up into states. And When we think of Palestine, this area that was largely occupied by Arabs once upon a time is not just the land of Muslims. Oh, definitely not. You know, many are, we have Christian holy sites there as well, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being primary one, which is not very far away from the Temple Mount as, as well. The place of Jesus crucifixion and entombment the western the western wall of the of the temple mount is is remaining which is a holy site for Jews the uh, site of al-aqsa mosque is the place where uh, muhammad went to heaven so it's a very holy holy site for for all three religions we also have got to talk about the 1967 six day war what happened then conflict over the sea trade and the sea routes israel decided that to close the trade route was an act of war um, in retaliation israel took um, the entire Arabian Peninsula and also the West Bank in that war, the Six-Day War. I think everybody was surprised they were able to accomplish such uh, so quickly. So um, they pushed, uh, pushed Jordan, I guess, back across the, the Jordan River from the, from the West Bank. In the aftermath of the Six-Day War, you know, they gave the Arabian Peninsula back to Egypt in, in, the, in the peace talks, but they never really gave back East Jerusalem, the West Bank, or, or Gaza. They maintained occupation of those, of those areas from the Palestinians. Let me interrupt for a second to remind listeners that this is this conversation here on WEHC. I'm Teresa Keller, the host. My guest today is Reverend Boyd Evans, who is the pastor at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon and has extensive experience in the Mideast, and we are now looking at horrors in the Mideast. But what I want to get to, you have been 
in this part of the world multiple times, and you know what it means, the occupied territory, you know what that means. Segregated roads, what does that mean? What does it mean to be occupied? Who's occupied? What happens at the checkpoints? Yeah, for example, the you know the checkpoint between uh, Ramallah and Jerusalem, uh, there it's essentially airport style security. Uh, people queue up in lines, go through, put their things through X-ray devices. And if you're a a worker trying to get to Jerusalem, there's with my American passport, I can essentially drive through if I'm in a car in a, in a bus uh, the checkpoint, different different levels. But there's also a s- similar checkpoint between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And then there's checkpoints within the West Bank. You know, you might say if I was traveling from Abingdon to Emory, there might be a checkpoint where everyone had to stop, show their passport, explain why they're traveling, where they're traveling to undergo some questioning. So military checkpoints dispersed throughout throughout the West Bank. Israeli soldiers. And then then the segregated roads, um, there's yellow license plates for Israeli vehicles and green license plates for Palestinian vehicles. Roads that would require the yellow license plate would have would go to the, the settlements in the in the West Bank. So while there is the notion of the Palestinian authority, which would be the primary like police force in a town like Ramallah, it um, essentially comes under the umbrella of the military authority. Under the um, Israeli military authority. The Israeli military, yes. If you're a Palestinian, you're not allowed to purchase weapons. Uh, however, if you're a, a settler, you're, of course, the settlers can, can walk around with a fully automatic, fully automatic weapon in the in the West Bank, which has been a source of much trouble and consternation uh, recently and violence in the in the West Bank. Who are the people who are going through these checkpoints? From my understanding, there are people who have to go through checkpoints to get to land that they grow crops on, or people who are going through checkpoints to go to work, or people who are trying to go shopping in Jerusalem, or when we say occupied, they're truly controlled. Truly controlled. The military controls everything that comes in and out of the borders. And Gaza is is even a more difficult case in point for that sort of control, because Gaza typically gets two hours a day of electricity. And this is, this is, this was my experience when I was there in 2016. There was limited Times for electricity, not much water, not much food, just kind of the bare minimum. You know, the siege of Gaza did not begin after October 7th. It was under siege and uh, occupation already. Total control of who goes in, who goes out, what goes in, what goes out. Why would Israel limit the amount of electricity to Gaza before October the 7th? That's a good question. There is a feeling among Palestinians, and I, I hesitate to speak, you know, there's a feeling that the occupation is violent of its own accord, that it uh, has the goal of making life as challenging as possible for the Palestinian population and uh, hopes that people, you know, might leave or, or but, you know, there's no, no real ability to travel 
or, you know, it's very difficult to leave Gaza. It's very difficult to get into Gaza. Let's attempt to look at the different perspectives here. And you know more about it from your experience there. People in Israel feel like they're afraid. They moved in to Palestine with the blessing of the United Nations League of Nations. They took territory. They sent Palestinians out. The people surrounding or within the state of Israel aren't happy. And some people think Israel doesn't have a right to exist. So Israel is afraid. I know that's simplistic, but what would you add to that? So I, I really am not sure I know or understand the is, Israeli perspective as much as I do the Palestinian having lived there. You know, Gaza is perhaps a reminder that there were people in the land before they got there. You know, Gaza is one of the places that refugees went to. Refugees in Gaza did not want to leave and desire to return to where they were before. It's a little dangerous to speak of the Jewish community or people in Israel as a, as a monolith because not all are for the occupation, not all are for the, you know, the difference in rights between Palestinians and Israelis. And so challenging to, to paint anything with a broad brush in this in this area. You know, I'm very well aware of this, Reverend Evans. I'm embarrassed by my lack of understanding, my lack of knowledge. I It sometimes seems like if you criticize Israel, that you're being anti-Semitic. I would think that we could see that there is a government and that there are people. But if you criticize Israel, some people take that to mean that you're anti-Semitic. And I know that we are at our risk of peril for anything we say, but you were in Palestine. You were in occupied territory. Just tell us from your experience then what that was like. Very challenging. When I was in Ramallah, we got water two uh, days a week. Um, again, I talked about Gaza getting electricity two hours uh, a day and, you know, things like fuel and food being, you know, what comes in and goes out of Gaza being, you know, controlled by the military, living, um, you know, military occupation, having to go through a military checkpoint uh, just to go from one village to another is, is not easy. That's, that's challenging as well. The lack of property rights for Palestinians is very difficult with the uh, settlers coming in and confiscating significant amounts of property. I think Maybe the average person doesn't understand that there's, you know, the West Bank is is a, is a pretty small territory. All of Israel, I think, is about the size of New Jersey. And then the West Bank, you know, is maybe a, it's a fraction of, of that. Um, but there's, you know, uh, 500 to 700,000 settlers in the West Bank, 2 million Palestinians or so. So, so when you say settlers, are you talking about Israelis who come in and settle in those territories? Yes. So that's something that has been continuing, is that Israel is continuing to build and have settlers build houses and settle in land that Palestinians say is theirs. Oh, exactly. And even, yes, the land that was left after 48, um, and then was came under military occupation in 67. So 
you know, the fourth Geneva Convention, it does not allow for, you know, the movement of a population during occupation. So the settlements are considered illegal by the international community, but they continue to grow. The settlers have also been inflicting significant, you know, violence in, in recent years on the Palestinian community. All right, I'm going to take a leap here. And again, this is all on me. But when Hamas invaded Israel on October the 7th and killed, I forget the numbers, 1,500, 1,700 people, took hostages, they've been angry for a long time. They're, it's not like that's the first thing that's happened. There have been skirmishes all along, have there not? Yeah, there's been skirmishes. Um certainly condemn what Hamas did, uh, but also, you know, condemn any killing of, of children as well. Uh, there's been approximately 100,000 Palestinians killed in the last roughly 15 years, you know, in, in the violence between the two, two groups. This is just what I've seen watching the news. You see Palestinian, young Palestinian boys throwing rocks toward fully armed soldiers. There have been lots of Palestinians killed in the last number of years. You said 100,000 in 15 years. But for Palestinians to be killed by Israeli soldiers is not uncommon prior to October the 7th, 2023. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, right. And then the, you know, the the last two years leading up to October 7th were some of the deadliest for Palestinians in, in uh, you know, in recent history. We're, we're recording this interview on Monday. It's supposed to air on Wednesday. As far as the current situation is concerned, the most recent news to date was that three hostages were free in the streets, waving a white flag of Israeli hostages, and they got shot by Israeli soldiers. So we don't know anything beyond that point. Israel itself is apologizing. They're re-examining their protocols. So there are some people in Israel who are calling for an immediate ceasefire, but Israel's perspective seems to be, we are going to root out Hamas, we're going to clear every tunnel, and we're going to do it by massive bombing. And we're going to continue to do that. What do you think is going to happen here? You know, I guess I have my hopes and, and fears. So, I mean, I would I would certainly hope that um, that there would be a, a ceasefire as, you know, as soon as possible, if not immediately. Definitely concerned that the, you know, the, the killing of the hostages who have, you know, appear to have escaped shows somewhat of a of an inability to tell who's a civilian or who's a Hamas or you know who's who's who I, I think um, you know there was also an, a, an attack on the the Catholic Church there in, in Gaza as well in the last few days in which two Christian women were killed so very much concern in the in the in the bombings and you know that there's been little attempt to delineate between, you know, those who are civilians and those who had anything to do with October, you know, October 7th. So, Well, the world is beginning to protest the mass killings, the killing of thousands of children. 
uh, as part of the civilian population with these mass bombings. You had experience with one of the hospitals that was in the news in connection with this story. Yes, I, I was able to visit the Al-Ahli Hospital in 2016 and um, was a you know, very positive experience for me. I um, felt pretty uh, very warmly received there in Gaza and felt like I was cared for. Um, the director of the hospital is a Christian woman named Sahela, and she uh, has a very dedicated and passionate uh, care for all who enter the doors of the hospital. Um, that hospital uh, was very much a center of, uh, for women's health and had a cancer treatment center, ultrasound, um, prenatal care, so very much providing needed services there in, in Gaza. And what happened to that hospital? Well, it was it was hit by, uh, you know, some sort of shell or missile early in the conflict. And the ultrasound unit and all was the women's health area was taken out. And uh, that was not widely publicized in the news. And then there was um, another there was the second instance that was widely publicized where there were people sheltering there at the hospital who were who were killed when or when some sort of rocket or something hit hit there and then there's different accounts on whether it was you know a hamas or 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 other other rocket gone astray is the hospital still open my understanding is that the hospital has reopened. Um, the hospital ran out of supplies, uh, totally ran out of supplies uh, a few weeks ago and had to close just because there was there was no gas, there was no bandages, there was no medicine, there was nothing they could do. And so the medical staff left and traveled south. It's my understanding that they have been able to somehow reopen, but the reports have been spotty. I don't have an up-to-date report on what's going on at, at the hospital. Reverend Evans, I assume you still have friends there in Palestine and the West Bank. You have Muslim friends, Christian friends, Jewish friends. I do. I have all, all, all of the above. Just such a heartbreaking, heartbreaking situation. Um, you know, we, we met a young man in Gaza who, uh, while we were there at the hospital, who posts frequently on, on Facebook, and he did not post for a few days, and we were very concerned what, uh, what was going on with him, you know, or if he was even still alive. Um, after several days, he, he made a post on Facebook, and he's probably around, he probably early 30s now, I would say, and has a few young young children, young young wife, and he posted that um, you know that they're you know that he was alive, but certainly wasn't well. Was really struggling to find food and water for his family, and that that things were just really difficult. But that their main strategy was to try to never be separated from one another, especially and to sleep together because if their uh, dwelling was bombed, they had hope to all die together so that no one would have to mourn the other or that their children would be without parents or they would have to grieve their children. And that's a apparently a strategy among many in, in Gaza as well. I've been surprised talking to people in our local community um, that there's many connections between the Abingdon uh, area, the 
broader region and Gaza. Many have friends and family in Gaza and are grieving, you know, the death of hundreds. At sometimes it's a small world and that we are interconnected globally. And regardless of that, I think it's heartbreaking to see the devastation in Gaza, just everything turned to rubble, knowing that people are starving. Uh, you are a pastor in the Christian church. This is Christmas season, the time of peace. We celebrate the birth of Christ, the Prince of Peace. How does one come to terms with an all-powerful God who sends his son to make life better and to give us hope and who allows this to happen? It is, it is very much stretched, uh, the faith of especially the Christian community in the, in the Holy Land right now. There was a, a, you know, a recent, uh, there was a meeting just today, if I'm not mistaken, among the heads of the churches in the Holy Land talking about what a struggle it was and struggle it continues to be uh, to remain Christian in the midst of occupation and violence in the Holy Land. The uh, Christian community um, is, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Bethlehem, they've canceled um, most of the festivities for Christmas this year. There's no large tree in Manger Square, and no large celebrations, very much focusing on prayer and fasting, uh, praying for peace and working for peace. Um, there's been um, limitations even placed, though, by, by the Israeli government on what uh, Christian practices can be carried out and what, what they're able to do and access to some of the holy sites, such as the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, has been limited for some celebrations uh, in, in recent times, such as Easter. But our faith, uh, you know, while it's, it's challenging, our faith is in our Savior, who did come into the world in challenging times of Roman occupation and violence. And um, so we know as Christians that um, violence will never solve violence. And we continue to call for ceasefire, continue to call for negotiations, to continue to call for talks, to uh, ask for the release of all prisoners and all hostages and uh, continue to try to find uh, solutions where um, there's justice for everybody, for Christians, for Muslims, for Jews, for Israelis, for everybody in, in this land that so many hold so, so, so dear. And uh, that is, is my hope, is that we can all uh, respect um, one another, that we can all recognize the importance of our holy sites to one another, uh, to know that we're all, you know, we all go back to Abraham um, and recognize we're all children of Abraham and try to love and respect and care for one another in that regard. Reverend Boyd Evans of St. Thomas Episcopal Church talking to us about the situation in Gaza, the I thank you so much for being with me. I thank you for your perspective. I hope that listeners will forgive my ignorance. If anybody out there has a viewpoint they'd like to express, I'd love to hear about it, and we could expand the discussion. Thank you again uh, once more, Reverend Evans. You're welcome. Pleasure to speak with you. And thanks above all to the listeners for tuning in. You're listening to this conversation. It airs Wednesday at 6 and Sunday at 2 
on WEHC 90.7. This interview will be posted on our podcast site, which is very easy to find. You can just go to your search engine for podcast or Google or whatever and say WEHC this conversation. Before we leave, I have updated news of the hospital that Reverend Boyd spoke about, Al-Hali Hospital, part of the Episcopal Diocese of Jerusalem, located in Gaza City. We did this interview on Monday afternoon. By Monday evening, I had gotten a message from Reverend Boyd that on Monday morning, the Israeli army destroyed the wall of Ali's front entrance and detained most of the staff. They left two junior doctors, four nurses, and two janitors to tend to over 100 seriously wounded patients, all with no running water and no electricity. An Israeli Defense Force tank was parked on the rubble of the hospital's entry wall, blocking all ingress and egress. There is, of course, great concern over the patients and the distressed hospital staff at that hospital in Gaza. I'm Teresa Keller. You've been listening to this conversation on WEHC.